This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. As we have demonstrated throughout our many, many Ironborn videos. I got a fever. And the only prescription is more... Ironborn videos. Thank you, Bruce. I think there are only like four so far, but uh, there's three ingredients to making an ironborn. That's what we've learned. One part ancient first man, one part ancient mariner from across the sunset sea, and one part deep one. We can't be sure of the exact percentages, but those are the three peoples that went into making the Ironborn Nation. And that's using peoples loosely, obviously. In the last video in this series, Driftwood Kings... Ironborn enthusiast Greywaste Tim and myself broke down and explained how the ancient Ironborn tradition of having a salt king to rule the sea and a rock king to rule the land dates back to the time when these two cultures, the ancient mariners and the land-based first men, were merging together. Pretty cool theory, explains a lot, so check that video out. And the deep ones, if you're wondering, seem to have contacted the first men before the ancient mariners got here. So they'd be one of the old races, like the giants and the children, who were there probably before any humans at all. So in today's video, well, today's video is kind of the payoff. If you've been watching any of these Ironborn videos and following our trail of exploration, well, today we're gonna give you answers. That's right, Tim and I will show you which specific parts of Ironborn culture came from each of these three parent cultures, the First Men, the Mariners, and the Deep Ones, including which Ironborn houses seem to have originated with each. In particular, we're going to show you what the First Men in this area were like before they merged with the Mariners and became the Ironborn, and that's going to be a lot of fun. And included in that will be an explanation for the origins of Castle Pike, as well as House Greyjoy and the Lord Reapers of House Greyjoy, and then also House Harlaw, Drum, Good Brother, and this treasure hunt will even connect us to certain houses in the Westerlands including the Casterlies of Casterly Rock who came before the Lannisters. That's right, a origin theory for the Casterlies incoming. We'll also finally get down to the specific origin of the Seastone Chair, as well as its original purpose. Yeah, I bet you hadn't even thought about that. What, what is its purpose? What is it used for and how? And as part of that, we'll explain its potential connections to both a shy and the deep ones. Tim actually gave what I think is the best explanation of what George was thinking with his oily black stone, which is a much discussed topic. And spontaneously, while we were working things out, he spotted some new Arthurian parallels in Ironborn mythology. So... Stay tuned for that. Handy guy, that Greyways Tim, and be sure to check out his YouTube channel 
Great ways, Tim. So this is the third and final part of the big four-hour live stream that YouTube demonetized for a few days two weeks ago, and we cut it up into a bunch of videos. It was originally supposed to be a scripted video, and then I invited Tim on to expand the ideas. Now it's back to being a produced video again. So, oh, the tangled webs we weave or something. But uh, thanks for watching my videos. Make sure you're subscribed to the channel. Help me get over 100,000. We're almost there. And yeah, you people are amazing. And if you want to join our Discord, aka the safe place to talk about A Song of Ice and Fire and House of the Dragon, then simply sign up for our Patreon or uh, click that join button down below and become a YouTube channel member squisher. That'll do the job as well. Cheers. And to that one commenter complaining about how annoying it is that I just refuse to talk about the deep ones. Nimble dick, is that you? Uh, there's some of that in this video. Maybe not as much as you want, but like I said, some, some actual explanations for the Seastone chair and the Ironborn involvement with the deep ones. Here you go. So yes, there, this might be another hammer of the waters thing, meaning the Iron Islands may have once been joined to the mainland. And a lot of what we've talked about makes a lot more sense if that was the case. Okay, so we mm -hmm. already talked about how the term first men is an umbrella term and there's actually more cultures included in there. So what we're trying to do is to find the local culture, the pre-mariner first man culture from this area, something that resembles the fiercer, more brutish aspects of ironborn culture, but without the sailing. So here's what mm -hmm. the maesters say. The maesters say that the ironborn are first men who somehow must have found the islands by drifting there on, quote, their feeble fishing boats and trading cogs, which again, quote, seldom ventured out of sight of land. So somehow they drifted there or something. And then presumably those first men who drifted there must have decided to stay or more likely Come, home, come back home and recruited more people, settlers, to come to the islands. And then over time, they would have developed the maritime skill that the Ironborn are known for. But the thing is, the mm. earliest record of the Ironborn, they're already advanced mariners. That's the first problem with this. So that's what the maesters say. Here's what David Lightbringer says. In real life, people with limited sailing skill do sometimes cross short passages of water to find mm -hmm. new lands. That does happen. However, that usually happens when the new lands are desirable places to be. We have to ask why would the first men who weren't skilled sailors settle on the Iron Islands when they are so famously bleak, windswept, lacking in safe harbors, and lacking in resources? Doesn't really make sense. Because, Tim, the most uh, direct parallel for the historical Viking, or the, the Ironborn, are, of course, the Vikings, and specifically a historical kingdom called the Kingdom of the Isles, which flourished from the 9th to 13th centuries CE. And, of course, the Iron Islands is called the Kingdom of the Isles, the Iron Isles. Now, the thing is, the Vikings, quote-unquote, they started off in Denmark and southern Sweden and southern Norway, but they spread out to include all kinds of little islands, the British Isles, Iceland, even Greenland, the Hebrides, uh, the Orkney Islands, bunch of little islands, okay? 
they were already a mariner culture when they did that. They were already skilled seafarers when they spread out and started inhabiting these bleak, inhospitable islands. And what they would do then is they would turn around and raid the, quote, Greenlands to the south from those bleak, inhospitable islands, the place where everyone else turned their nose up. And they were sparsely inhabited in some cases, and the Vikings just, you know, replaced those people. But for the most part, they were islands that everyone else turned their nose up at. The Vikings used them as bases to raid the Greenlands and then set up homes there. So a very obvious parallel. But the main the point is they were already the most skilled seafarers in the area. They were the only people who saw the geographic isolation and harsh climate as a bonus. And they were the only people who really could have thrived there. And that's what they did. So the Iron Islands being very similar, bleak, inhospitable, cold, windswept, doesn't make a lot of sense that non-Mariner first men would settle there mm. and then develop maritime skill. It doesn't really follow history. No. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and because the way the maesters say it that, it, that these first men in their version of events, it sounds like they found these islands completely on accident, right? It sounds like if these guys are already not the best sailors and they're only out on these little little fishing boats, it sounds this sounds more like the story of someone who got carried out by a storm and got lucky that they found land. But if that's the case and these guys are some and if we hold this to be true and they're somehow able to make it back home, the idea that they're going to try it again to go find the place that they landed at when it's this desolate and they're not good to, at sailing to begin with. No, that doesn't make sense. And it's so again, like, and going with uh, the Thousand Islands, which is another, our better, our good example of something that probably aren't islands, but are the sunken remains, the exact same wordage. Cause so we are islands, bleak windswept, lacking in safe harbors. The same is said with the Thousand Islands. They have no safe harbors, and the line from the World of Ice and Fire that describe them is a bleak, sea-girt scatter of windswept rocks. It's the same language describing the Iron Islands. These are not prime real estate islands. These are, these are gray, cold, daunting rocks with nothing much of value to offer. Yeah, and they're very clearly stranded there. They don't have um, maritime skill. Because, Tim, the deep ones don't teach you maritime skill. That's kind of my point. Like, the deep ones don't teach you anything except for what it's like to suffer. Okay? (laughs) That's all they teach you. Pain and misery um, and, and, and whatever their breeding practices are. They do not teach you how to weave nets and become sailors. So the idea that the... What I'm saying is the first men having contact with the deep ones, that doesn't make them sailors or pirates. That just makes them worshipers of the deep ones who are being farmed by the deep ones. That's all that means. Mm-hmm. So we shouldn't, don't get those crossed. Like the, the old, the Greyjoys, well, we'll get to the Greyjoys, but the Thousand Islands show that. They've been farmed by the deep ones. They don't know how to sail. Okay. Yeah. So that's, those are different things. I'm not saying it's impossible that first men moved to the Iron Islands and then learned how to... I don't like reductive reasoning where you're like, my theory is the only possible... No, it is possible that they just 
you know, there were a few people that lived on the coast that were a little better at sailing that the maesters don't know about. And so when those people went to the Iron Islands, they were already a little bit advanced and then they did develop the skill, whatever. The thing is, we know that the ancient mariners from the great empire of the dawn did come there for all the reasons that we've spent two hours talking about. So it's pretty easy to say that what happened was the first men wandered out there and got taught how to do maritime stuff by the gray king and his people. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah, it's not impossible, but it is implausible. It's the least likely option that, that first men found this all on their own and sailed there. Like, no, it seems more likely that they had help from someone who knew what they were doing. And that's and, how we get the culture we have. And so following the logic, if it's unlikely that the first men would settle a bleak windswept archipelago like the Iron Islands, then how did the first men get there for the Grey King's people to teach them how to do this stuff? Well, they probably walked there. This is what I'm saying. The strongest evidence is that Pike, the island of Pike, was connected to the mainland. It could have been the entire Iron Islands, but if you can walk all the way to Pike, then you can probably see the shoreline of some of the other iron, other other islands, and from there it would be easy to get to say Harlaw, because the islands are all close mm-hmm. to each other, and we also have to assume the shorelines are probably closer when the sea levels are higher, which they used to be higher. It seems when you look at the the summary evidence in the world of ice and fire, it's clear that George is mimicking our current history timeline where sea levels have risen 300 feet or so since 10,000 BC. So Arm of Dorn, Thousand Island, there's a few places that show sea level rise is happening. Yeah, but what, if I had to guess, Pike originally was probably a peninsula in the same way that Valyria was a peninsula. Then the doom happened. Now it's a bunch of charred islands. So Pike being a peninsula seems to be like it would be mimicking the doom of Valeria, whatever happened to break up, to break that peninsula and turn it into islands. And of course, we've got the idea of a volcano on Old Wick. And there's, there's a bunch of Valeria parallels, obviously. So that's, that all fits. Now, when we talk about Iron Islands being joined to the mainland... The cause of the land collapse is, according to me, going to be the long night meteor strike. Um, but again, there could also be gradual sea level rise that is responsible for part of it. You know, Doggerland, for example, the Doggerlanders have been dogged, Tim, at wanting me to mention Doggerland. So here you go. Um, uh, Doggerland is, of course, the land both between England and Europe, but also adjoining into the sea. There's quite a bit of land that got sunk. Most of you guys are familiar with this. It sunk in stages. It wasn't an Atlantis-type thing. There were some flooding events, but it basically was a big chunk of land. At one point, it was cut off, and there were islands, very low-lying islands, not like the Iron Islands, which are steep and mountainous. So different scenario which is why I didn't bring up Doggerland, because it's not really similar to the Hammer of the Waters or the Iron Islands. So stay in your lane, Pete. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Totally kidding. I love your comments. Thank you for mentioning Doggerland. I'm just... Anyway. But the point is, when um, even though it's not similar, the idea that sea level rise gradually raises the coastlines and that this will 
for a time isolate stretches of land that used to be connected could very well be in play here as well. So probably a combination of one disaster and flooding event followed by some sea level rise. And through those two mechanisms, we have more than enough room for the Iron Islands once to have been connected into the mainland in whole or in part. So let us review the bullet point evidence that this was the case, which we've already mentioned some of this, so we'll go real fast here. No one remembers who built Pike. So that indicates it is very old and that its origins are from a time in history before a break in like the cultural continuity. You can't see Cleo, but she's nodding her head aggressively. So like this is part of, this is a period of history that's cut off. Something happened like the long night that interrupted some of the record keeping and over time people forgot who built it. So Pike is probably pre-long night also because again, the land collapse. It clearly was built on a piece of land that suffered a huge calamity and has collapsed underneath of it. I don't buy the gradual erosion. There's too much going on there for gradual erosion for me. Because that means they would have had to have built Pike on like cliffs that were super unstable to begin with. I just don't believe that. And I don't think you build it on sea stacks that are crumbling. So it looks like a castle that was built when the land was intact here, AKA before the disaster. The destroyed peninsula itself is long, it's tall, it's very steep. Pike is elevated. It's not low lying on the coast. It's on a tall, the sea stacks are tall. You've seen all the art, it's accurate how it depicts it. So these, this is like a mountain ridge that has crumbled into the sea. And also there's several larger, there's three large islands and then smaller islets. So it's not just a little crumbling peninsula. Like, it's a big crumbling peninsula. It's turned into several chunks of drowned land. So it's, when you picture it, like, it's bigger than almost all of the art depicts it, actually. There's one piece of art that is more, actually, yeah, let me pull this one up. I found a new Pike artwork that I found since the Pike video. I didn't include it. This is by Lino Drage, and this is very accurate. So they're tall sea stacks. There's a bunch of them. They're going out into the sea. You can tell, like, land has crumbled away from these sea stacks very clearly. Oh, Cleo's preening my hair a little bit. Hopefully that doesn't turn violent. Okay. So, yeah, pretty sick art, isn't it, Tim? Yeah, that's nice. This one is um, this one is pretty good. This is by, well, all the art is outstanding, but as far as the accuracy of what I'm talking about, this is by Felix Sotomayor. So this shows you like three large islands where the first three keeps are, and then smaller sea stacks containing the outer keeps and the last, the sea tower. So it's a lot of land that has collapsed. That is the point. It is only two days sail from Pike to the Bain Fort, which is the mainland. And it's the same from Harlaw to the mainland. It's about two days sail. So it's not very far. Then we've got um, Pike Island. Like we said, it might be named after the castle, which implies that the castle may have existed before it was an island. So if Pike, if it was a peninsula that connected to the mainland, it's not an island, and thus it doesn't need its own name necessarily. Like maybe the region was called Pike, but it very well could have been the castle that was the first thing called Pike. Then when the peninsula crumbles, they'd go ahead and name the island Pike because 
that's what's there, Castle Pike. So now it's Pike Island. So that, that little funny detail in the history that doesn't have any other explanation that anyone could think of is neatly explained by this theory. As Tim mentioned earlier, Pike's Curtain Wall faces the rest of the Iron Islands, so potentially it could have been built by people from the mainland who are building a wall against whoever lives further out, which would be potentially more deep one influenced people or the mariners themselves. Who knows? Because when the mariners first landed on Great Wick, they could have lived there for decades or even centuries before unifying the entire Iron Islands. So maybe at a time when Pike is built, it's a first-man castle that's in rivalry with the mariners out on the end of the peninsula, which is where the Wick Islands are. Something like that. Go ahead, Tim. I was thinking, like, the name Pike, when we think Pike, the definition, like a spear, if we're thinking a peninsula, and if Pike's at the spot where, like, let's say the peninsula sort of narrows out a bit, then that would make sense as to why Pike would be built in the way it is, where it's seemingly facing the wrong direction. Because if it's in a more narrow, narrow area, then it would make sense to have built that castle and facing that direction to sort of make up for uh, the le- the uh, where things narrow so that you could cover both land and if people were to try to go around it. But the way it is now, like I said, the way it is now as an island, it seems like it's facing the wrong direction. But if it was on a narrow strip of land that connected, formed like a narrow land, more narrow land bridge, kind of like the neck, then its design makes a lot more sense. So a couple things here the chat is mentioning. A, the peninsula may have looked like a pike. Mm -hmm. Um, Pike is a saltwater fish. And actually, I've got queued up a little bit later. Smart YouTube comment theater. This is from Geekin789 a couple months ago on the Ironborn video. Mentioned that pike, we don't know if the castle's named after the fish or the spear, but the fish, pike, is a river fish, not a sea fish. It only lives in rivers, ponds, and occasionally brackish water on the coast, but never the salty seas. So he asks, why would seafaring Viking island people have any affinity to a freshwater fish? Perhaps they brought it with them from their swampy coastal origins, or maybe their land was more like the riverlands before whatever disaster happened. And then, of course, if Pike is named after the spear, then it's a name that has nothing to do with the sea at all. So, mm-hmm. And also people have pointed out pikes are what you use to defend a curtain wall. So Pike has this big curtain wall facing the rest of the peninsula or the rest of the islands, and it would have been guarded by, pe- by pikemen. So maybe that's part of it, too. Yeah. It's, it's George using another one of those loaded words because of how many different definitions it has. So then getting back up to the rest of these, a couple more points. Um, there's no safe anchorage anywhere near Pike. People have to land at Lordsport on the opposite side of the island. So why would you build this big castle? If you're island people, why would you build where there's no port? You'd build by Lordsport first where there's a port. <laughs> you know, at first I was saying, well, it implies that there used to be a harbor and the harbor sunk. So that implies there's a lot of land enough to have a harbor that sunk. But if it was just a peninsula and it was built by land lubber first men, they don't really care about having a harbor because they're not sailors anyway. And I think that's the better answer is that there's, there's no safe anchorage at Pike, but that doesn't matter because it was built by people who weren't seafaring people at the time. So take your pick, but either one works for not having been built by mariners. And then, of course, the symbolism at Pike 
directly implies catastrophe. All this Theon's first chapter there, it's a tour de force of symbolism. The red comet's in the sky. He talks about all this sword plunging into the sea, smashing the land, blah, blah, blah. You guys know the routine. And if you don't, go watch the Ironborn video. But the symbolism implies that there was a peninsula of land shattered by a comet impact. That is specifically what is spelled out there, as clear as any symbolism is in the books. I'm taking the like sort of evidence first approach, but I used to do symbolism first. And the symbolism first approach definitely leads you to believe that the land was severed by a meteor impact, just like at the Arm of Dorne, and that this is part of the same Hammer of the Waters event. Because of course, comets and meteors usually fragment when they enter Earth's atmosphere. It's a lot of gravity and friction and heat. They usually break into multiple pieces. And what we're learning about the, um, the Younger Dryas impact looks like a multiple strike event all across Canada with a couple of hits in Europe as well. And obviously some in the ocean in between. So the, the Cape York meteorite, I think they think that could be a Younger Dryas meteorite, but don't quote me on that. I'd have to double check. That's the one in Greenland. So, for all these reasons, pretty solid theory to imagine that the land used to be connected. And it makes, again, it makes sense for the idea that the first men were strong here and they settled here and built castles here. It all makes sense if the land is connected. But now, let me blow your minds. I wish I had gotten into this sooner than two hours into this, two hours and three hours into this stream. But you know what, Tim? So be it. We're having a great stream. This is everything I hoped it would be and more. We still have like 400 people watching here. So you guys are obviously having a good time. It's about to get better. So check this out. I'm wearing my, my Reaper t-shirt here. For a reason. <laughs> For a reason. Because this I is what that. I have named. As of you, right. Okay, so Tim saw the notes as well. Very nice. A squid, <laughs> a squid Reaper. Love it. So check this out. The place on mainland Westeros closest to the Iron Islands is the Bane Fort. Now, the Bane Fort dates back to the Age of Heroes slash Dawn Age, where they were ruled by the, quote, the hooded kings of the Bane Fort. And the very last hooded king of the Bane Fort is Morgan Bane Fort. And he was defeated by the first historical king, Lannister King of Casterly Rock, Lorion the Lion the First. So that means the entire existence of the Bane Fort kings is before the Lannister dynasty, a.k.a. before the coming of Lan the Clever. Lan the Clever is probably a mariner from the Great Empire of the Dawn. His immigration to Westeros probably lines up with the High Towers and the Grey King, so it all kind of fits, right? The Bane Fort, these people are predating the land collapse. So this is the castle, guys, that is directly opposite Pike on the mainland. If you sailed from Pike to Westeros, you land at the Bainfort, as I discussed in the Ironborn video, and Morgan Bainfort, the last king, he is a necromancer who goes into battle with his thralls, quote unquote. We're told that the first men practiced thraldom, but there's only three specific mentions of it, and this is one of them. And this is the only time, Tim, that going to battle with thralls is mentioned. Normally that is not done, apparently. So, this necromancer king had a very heavy reliance on his thralls, just as the Ironborn do. What I've looked up since making the Ironborn video is that the word bane, the, the, the common understanding is like, oh, if someone's your bane, that's like your worst enemy. Well, specifically, it means a person or thing who ruins or despoils. So like the person who always ruins your plans, that's your bane. 
Or it could be okay, the thing. Okay. It doesn't have to be a person. That just makes the Bainfort kings ruiner kings, which just sounds like reaving, doesn't it? Go ahead. Well, I was thinking because we've been talking when the Eurogod stuff comes up. We talked about like and the high towers and the whole pen dragon and all, all this Arthurian legend. So then when the name Morgan comes up, Morgan Bainfort, like my I was thinking, I was like, does this have anything to do with Morgan Le Fay? And then you just brought that up. This is like, yeah, like a male, a male Morgan Le Fay type situation, it sounds like. Oh, because he's a necromancer king yeah. you're saying okay i hadn't even thought about yeah. that that's so funny i had not thought about that that's yeah. good that's weaving more weaving more arthurian legend by giving us a morgan lefay type very cool so i'll come back to the morgan name in a second but like i said the definition of bane is someone who ruins or despoils so the bane fort mm -hmm. kings they were ruiner kings that is a title and set of accompanying symbols the hooded kings or it fits right in with the reaving aspect of Ironborn culture. Okay? So now, yeah. House Bainfort, they are the only house in the Westerlands besides Lannister with a specific Dawn Age backstory, even though no one from House Bainfort is ever involved in the main story or even the recent history. So they really seem like just a plant that is a part of Ironborn history and not... That's all they are. They're really just a part of Ironborn history. And so, a Lord Reaper of Pike with thralls sounds very similar to a hooded necromancer king with a thrall army. Because, folks, the Grim Reaper wears a hood. Lord Reaper, okay? Hooded king. This is the same set of ideas. It's all Grim Reaper stuff. The Grim Reaper wears a hood. It's great, right? So, I am calling... This local first man culture that we are attempting to isolate, the Reaper culture, because it has to have a name. So working title, you can see what I'm saying. There's common cultural elements between Pike and the Bainfort, and they are so close. And this would make sense if they used to be connected by land, because these people weren't mariners yet. They were first men. So perhaps this is our first sign of a local first man culture, which is based on raiding and thrall-taking, but doesn't have anything to do with sailing. And this all works better if Pike and the Bainfort are joined by land. The Greyjoys, the first Greyjoys, well, the first people who lived on Castle Pike anyway, that may or may not have been Greyjoys, these would have been first men who were not yet sailors. And I want to point out, they sit on a rock throne. Now, yes, it's from the Salty Sea, so you could call it a salt throne. It's literally a rock throne, although technically salt is rock. So don't think about it too hard because we don't want to overanalyze this stuff, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, the first Greyjoys, depending on when the Seastone Chair was moved to Pike from Old Wick where it was found, I think that's all first men. It says the first men found the Seastone Chair on Wick and moved it to Pike, essentially. So I think that all predates the Grey King because Seastone Chair is not on Wick when Grey King is there. It's not in any of his stories. It's already gone. So it's already on Pike. So the first Greyjoys, rock kings, sitting on a rock throne, worshiping the Squishers, and they were Reaper kings because they were taking thralls, just like the hooded kings of the Bainfort. So we're talking about Grim Reaper symbolism, Grim Reaper. What do you need for a Grim Reaper costume? 
you need a hooded cape mm-hmm. and a scythe, right? So House Harlaw, come on down. They're the other Iron Island that is closest to the mainland, and they claim to have flown the silver scythe as a symbol since the dawn of days. And they spread out from Harlaw Hall to conquer the entire island. All the cadet houses use the silver scythe. So it is indeed a very old symbol. And the Harlaws are the oldest known rock kings on Harlaw. And so, clearly, they are part of the Reaper culture as well. And clearly, this whole scythe, Reaper, hood, that's their symbolism. Okay, so you see George giving us the clues here to put this together. So we can assume that Harlaw probably also joined to the mainland. What do you think of this so far, Tim? Yeah, this is making... It makes a lot of sense that like Ironborn, as we know them, is like Bain, is like a uh, landed Bainfort culture meets Eastern Mariner, and this is the product, and that's how you get like the Lord Reaper culture on the Iron Islands. And all three culture, all three of these houses seem to predate the Long Night. Um, Dawn of Days oh, is then, kind. What's that? I was just thinking because since the Bainfort and House Bainfort are a Westerlin house. And if the ancient mariners come from the east, then you literally have the meeting of east and west, the western lens and the e- and the eastern lens. Yeah, that's what's going on. And we're going to get to the westerlands. We're going to go deeper into the westerlands too in a second. So the Harlaws, so Dawn of Days, it's a general statement, but in Westeros specifically, it's probably referenced to the Dawn Age. So we know that Pike is pre-long night, or at least it seems to be. Um, we know that the Bainfort hooded kings predate the Lannisters and the coming of Land the Clever. That's well before the Long Night. Um, so all of this stuff seems to be pre-Long Night. So that's a good fit for a local first man culture that exists before the Mariners come. And there's only two ways that Harlaw and Pike and the Bainfort could all share a common culture. Either the people that lived in those three places were already skilled sailors who sailed between those locations easily, but we know that probably wasn't the case, or they were all joined by land. And so they were easily traveled between with horses and feet, like normal empire, local empires would be. So here comes Ramon Rico 8444, who blew my mind with this comment, simple comment, it's odd that all the Harlaw houses use a farming implement as their sigil when the Ironborn hate farming so much. To which I say, oh, <laughs> all of him was burning. <laughs> well then, yes, this is true. Why would the most ancient Ironborn in this area use all the symbolism of the scythe and the reaper if they do not sow and hate farming? Because guys, sowing and reaping are both farming concepts. You don't reap without sowing. Like, it's evolved into a, a taunt of the Greenlanders, but it probably did not start out that way. But let's just say it this way. In the real world, a people that held the scythe sacred would be presumed to be a farming culture. <laughs> Very obviously. And the Grim Reaper mythology did indeed arise from farming civilizations. The first men were a farming culture, specifically from the beginning. Gartha Greenhand is farming. They're not hunter-gatherers, and they're not pastoralists, and they're not nomads. They're farmers. So, the Reaper culture, 
first man culture of farmers. It fits very well. <laughs> and they're using farming implements as their sacred symbolism. Most of the other ironborn sigils are things that are tied to the maritime lifestyle of the ironborn. Fish, sea monsters, trees to build ships with, and a few symbols tied to the Grey King mythology, Naga's bones, the storm gods, stuff like that. But then we've got this scythe in the Lord Reaper title. They are signs of farming culture, I assert. But even if you wanted to entertain the idea that maybe this is all designed to taunt the farmers of the Greenlanders and that pirates came up with these symbols as taunts, why do the Baneforts, why do they seem a part of the Reaper symbolism when they're on the mainland and they're never said to be mariners? So it doesn't really fit. What does fit is that the Reaper culture exists from Pike to the Banefort, and it's associated with thraldom, which is a first man practice. So that's perhaps the best evidence that these early first men inhabiting this area, well, that's who they were, they were first men. They practiced thraldom, they practiced farming, they came up with farming symbols. I believe I've made my point. I, I do want to bring up something because I just had a, okay, so thank you, Mike Boy, for pointing this out. Is like literally, I was just writing House Banefort Westerlands, House Grim the Reach, House Harlaw the Iron Isles. So I just made me look up House Grim is a Reach house. They're the they're the lords of Grey Shield, which ah. is one of the Shield Islands. Hmm. After Euron takes the Shield Islands, he gives Grey Shield to Harris Harlaw. House Grim is given over to the Reaper. Grim Reaper. That's delightful. And the Shield Islands have an interesting history. They have passed back and forth between the Ironborn and the men from the Reach. And there's symbolism going on there, which we'll get into in a different video. So, necromancy connection, Tim. The Baneforts, if they're pre-Mariner, first man, Ironborn, we have to ask the question, just what kind of necromancer was Morgan Banefort? Morgan Banefort. <laughs> Just who was he raising from the dead? Who, what, what was this thrall army of his? Were these drowned men like Patchface? Is that why he's got a thrall army and he's a necromancer? Does he have an army of like Patchfaced out thralls? I'm trying to think more of this Morgan LaFay stuff because I'm also remembering, you know, because Iron Island, because we've talked about with this, another one of these Reach Iron Island Westerman connection, if the Morgan Bainford is connected to Morgan LaFay, and then in Iron Islands, when we did the Ironborn heraldry, there is a house, House Merlin, and then he's going to Old Town, and the high towers are all based off of Pendragon from the Arthurian tales. Then yeah, it's it more. We got we got all of our main we got all of our main ones. Uh, we got our, our Arthur is in the Reach, our Morgan Le Fay is in the Westerlands, and our Merlin in the Iron Islands. The whole Arthurian thing is starting to connect with these three areas. So, so oh. again, you see George Martin's just exquisite yeah. skill in finding ways to weave together all of his favorite tales that have inspired him at the points yeah. where they naturally overlap. And sometimes it takes creativity. And so mm -hmm. Morgan Le Fay becomes Morgan Bainfort. Like it's- Yeah, gender bent <clears throat> Morgan Le Fay, yeah. It's, it's really great. I'm, again, so 
thus validating my decision to turn this into a very long live stream with Tim instead of a more dry video. Um, I don't know if how the views will compare, but this is definitely more fun and this is a better presentation of this information. So thank you very much, Tim, yeah. for joining me and bringing all of this to uh, Lannis Lannister Lancelot. You'll have to, yeah, well, that's a different, we're not going to do all the Arthurian a Song of Ice and Fire yeah. parallels. There are more outside the scope of the Ironborn, for sure. It is worth noting because we're asking what kind of, what was Morgan Banefort raising? And if he's just raising zombies, well, one of the spellings for Morgan Le Fay, depending on what translation you're reading, sometimes her name is just Morg, M-O-R-G-U-E, where, you know, where dead bodies are placed. So with that being a necromancer, if he's raising, yeah, if he's raising, uh, like, zombies, whether they're drowned, like, drowned men, but yeah, it's... Uh, There's several ways to make zombies. Ice and fire... Hmm. I think Patchface is definitely dead and resurrected. He did grow, mm -hmm. though. So the water resurrection seems to be a little different because Beric's not growing anymore, I don't think. Mm -hmm. He does have scars, though, from some of his deaths, which do indicate some amount of activity. I'm not sure how much George has thought about that. But Patchface was drowned as a 10-year-old and grows. So clearly... Mm -hmm. The water resurrection is a little different, but again, it has to have been through some kind of magic. It's not just resurrection. Like we have to say, well, what kind? Yeah. The evidence for the first men out here is that they were contacted by the deep ones. And mm -hmm. most of us that have pondered such things, such as Tim and I and other people have always suspected that patch face and his drowning is showing us the origin of the ironborn CPR ritual, right? The implication is that the ancient Ironborn used to practice drowning ritually. Like the pat they used to patch face people on purpose with real magic, and that was part of their original religion. It kind of makes sense to think about ancient people in this region, the most ancient people, pre-Mariner first men, some of whom were contacted and worshiping the deep ones, to be doing water necromancy and creating the origins of the drowned man ritual. This is where we should find it. And this is where I go back to the name Morgan. Morgan means sea dweller, specifically someone who lives by the white-capped sea, a stormy sea. So it's Morgan Bainfort has a name that plays up his connection to the sea. So that's another reason for us to suspect that the resurrection was the watery kind. Also, one of the reasons we're connecting necromancy to the Ironborn is because of Dagon Drum, the necromancer. Yeah. And so it's like, well, what kind of resurrection is Dagon Drum practicing? Even more likely, we would guess the watery kind. He's all the way out on Wick. Like, what kind of resurrection would he be practicing? So we can't say for sure. But my theory is that all the necromancy in this region is signs of early contact with the Deep Ones. Yeah, that would make the most sense. Thank you. I appreciate Cthulhu. that. Yeah, for all the Cthulhu imagery. So, Bainfort's necromancy. Let's go on to House Drum, because we just said the necromancy it potentially is a sign of early first man Deep One culture that predates the Mariners. So let's consider House Drum. The bone hand sigil does kind of complete the Grim Reaper picture, doesn't it, Tim? Because when the Grim Reaper 
does show the only part of him you ever see is the hand. It's a skeletal hand mm. that reaches out and points, usually at someone that's going to die, of course. Um, so yeah, we've got the hooded kings, the Lord's Reaper, we've got the scythe kings of Harlaw, and now we have the bone hand. So it's not the bone hand is not anything that makes you think of the ocean at all, and it fits with the Reaper stuff. The word drum is kind of ambiguous. We know it does refer to thunder because the drum's ship is called the Thunderer. It could also refer to the drums used to coordinate oarsmen on a long ship. Um, It could just refer to storms and thunder. So it's ambiguous. Um, But House Drum, the main thing is, okay, well, House, we've been talking about Pike, Harlaw, and the Bainfort. They are close to the, the land. They're close to the Westerlands, right? Now we're all the way out on the furthest extent of the Iron Islands, whether it's a peninsula or an archipelago, we're on Wick now. The thing is, it's more than possible that all the Iron Islands were joined, or as I said, if you can get out to Pike and Harlaw by land, you can then see the coastline of the rest of the islands and reach them easily. So the first men, if they can walk to Harlaw and Pike, they may have made it to the rest of the islands by canoe and primitive watercraft. I think they were just all joined, but I just want to present all the options. And so... The other thing, the other reason why we should think that the first men did make it all the way out to Wick before the Mariners got there is because of the legends of the first men finding the sea stone chair on the shores of Old Wick and the implication that it was then brought back to Pike because that's where it is now. It's on Pike and the Grey King mythology doesn't have any sea stone chair. So originally we're wondering... Did the sea stone chair come from a shy because it's oily stone? Did the Grey King bring it on his boat? Well, no. If the Grey King brought it on his boat, he would have sat on it and it'd be a central part of his mythology, but it's not. He sat on other thrones that weren't sea stone chairs. So it's a squishers thing and it probably predates the Mariners and it was probably moved from Old Wick to Pike before the Mariners ever showed up. That's what makes sense. And so that implies that the first men made it out to the tip of the peninsula before the Mariners showed up. And then, of course, if necromancy is a link between the Bane Forts and Dagon Drum, then it makes sense to suppose that the drums are part of this first man reaper culture, doesn't it? Now, the best part of this, Tim, House Drum, they are the lords of Great Wick now because they were historically the Rock Kings of Old Wick. So if the Rock Kings are first men associated houses, then it makes sense that the drums would be rock kings. That's another clue that they are first man house. Boom. What do you think? Yeah. And uh, this is where I feel like the water zombie thing comes with the fact that the necromancer of house drum is Dagon drum, which is another straight up love rip with, rip with the story of Dagon. Right. And then Dagon being an old fish God. This is where the waters. Yeah. The water zombie holds more water here with day with uh with the drums now as for the stone the sea talking on the sea stone chair so going back to cthulhu and his dream infiltration cthulhu's powers are always more he manifests them better whenever anyone's around like an image or an idol of him and the idol in the call of cthulhu the idol that they have of, of him the stone sculpture uh, it's the line here is it's very material was a mystery for the soapy greenish black stone with its golden or iridescent flecks 
resembled nothing familiar to geology or mineralogy. Now, when you think bloodstone, real life bloodstone is green jasper with red and golden flecks. So the idol that Cthulhu is carved from in the story sounds like it's carved from bloodstone. Oh, yes. George's bloodstone is the oily black stone. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. There's so many reasons to think so. Um, The bleeding stars are meteors. Mm -hmm. So the bloodstone is implied as a meteor, and all the oily stone is coded as meteorite stone or toxic magic space rock from Lovecraft. So, yes, it all fits very well. And you can see where George got the idea of oily black stone. Soapy, iridescent, greenish black. It's all perfect. And, yes, if you get a polished bloodstone, it's a very dark green. It almost looks black. So that's all um, super, super good analysis there. Yeah, so he's mashing together... Because again, he he likes he he doesn't just draw from one story; he's drawing from multiple stories. So he's mashing together the stone idol of Cthulhu and the strange meteorite from Color Out of Space to create his these black stone meteors. And then what did they do? Well, they have the same effect. If we think of a shy and the black stone, then it's having the same effect as the meteor from the Color Out of Space. So this is him throwing it here in another area, like throwing something similar to the black stone meteor but putting in another area and having it serve another narrative purpose with Ironborn and Drowned God, Cthulhu connections. Right, and so this leads me to my conclusion that essentially the Seastone Chair is an idol dragged ashore by the Deep Ones and used to facilitate the first man worship, quote-unquote, of the Deep Ones. Mm -hmm. And I'll even guess that the reason why it's got a seat in it is because children or babies were left there on the shore in the seat for the deep ones to come and collect. So it's kind of a baby altar. And it's just the same as leaving the babies in the mouths of the weirwood trees to get back to the white tree mm-hmm. art and the craster theory. That's a parallel. This is where I actually, I know, I thought of the sea stone chair thing first. I was like, ah, oh, the seat is for the sacrifices to the deep ones. God. And now the now the Greyjoy kings sit there. It makes the symbolism even more potent. They think they're the squid kings, but they're actually just prey for the deep ones whenever the deep ones should choose to collect. Just like the others collect babies from the mouths of the weirwoods. So it's very dark, but yeah, this is all this is what's happening. It it obviously rings true. I mean, I just I don't know. It's that's what I think. But let's set the Said that actually, you know what? I need to go check on Goose. He's screaming. I think it's gotten dark outside. I need to turn the lights down and give him a snack. Um, oh, sure. Well, I do want to make another a shy. Well, it's another a shy guy connection. When we're talking this idea of the sea stone chair being like an altar, uh, a sacrificial altar where one might place a baby or a child as a sacrifice to the deep ones, and then that correlates to Craster sacrificing his sons, possibly by pa- placing them in the mouth of a weirwood and then if we take that and go into a shy i mean well the shadow binders it's specifically stagai stagai is is uh called a corpse city and everyone the only people who dare tread there are shadow binders and the shadow binders are probably going there for a reason and one theory that we've talked about is the idea that stagai might be an altar Kind of like in the way that Old Wick is a holy site for the Ironborn, 
Stagai as a corpse city could be a holy site for the Shadowbinders. And I've said, like, Stagai sounds like it could be the ground zero for where this black meteor that's screwed up a shy and caused all this color out of space stuff to happen, that might be what's there. Well, in, Cthul- in Call of Cthulhu, uh, the city of the drowned city of Rila, where Cthulhu lives. So again, this would be a holy city because this is where the drowned Rila would be, where the literal drowned god lives, is also referred to as a corpse city. Uh, the line is: the men sight a great stone pillar sticking out of the sea. Come upon a coastline of mingled mud, ooze, and weedy cyclopean masonry, which can be nothing less than the tangible substance of Earth's supreme terror, the nightmare corpse city of Ryla that was built in measureless eons behind history by the vast loathsome shapes and seeped down from the dark stars. There lay great Cthulhu and his hordes, hidden in green slimy vaults, and sending out at last, after cycles incalculable, the thoughts that spread fear to the dreams of the sensitive and called imperiously to the faithful to come on a pilgrimage of liberation and restoration. And this, this language, this language, it sounds like everything green sea calling out to the minds of the first men, the sense the, the minds of the sensitive first men. That's like green dreams. The idea of liberation and restoration. This is Euron like leading leading the Ironborn to his great dream. Like you you take this line, you connect it all, and then the fact that, that right there, the nightmare corpse city, these holy sites are also referred to as nightmarish places and corpse cities. And then you see like, and this is where everything's meeting, ice, fire, and water. And water, like, because you need from ice to fire, what do you get when you mix ice and fire? That's why you need the Ironborn and the Roinar. The water is necessary because it's the logical step in between. Here we see all of the intermingling with it. When you take Ashai being the fire, the Iron Islands being the water, and the north and what the far north and whatever Craster's doing. These are the altars. These are the sacrifices for all three branches. And that's why George finds the symbolism of the weir so useful. And that's why the water symbolism is grafted onto the idea of the green, the weirwoods via the green sea symbolism and the idea of a weir as a wooden dam that regulates the flow of water on a stream. It's because the weirwood net is the mediate. It's the central thing. Like ice and fire are both mediated through the weirwood net. Fiery Azor High goes into the weirwood net. The icy others come out. People go in and come out and get resurrected. You know, the red, green, and blue fork of the trident all become one river. And the river is called the trident. The trident is the weapon of the sea god, mm-hmm. the, the god of the weirwood net. So, all, yeah, it makes sense that all the aquatic symbolism is mapped onto the weirwood net. Because, like you said, ice and fire make water. And that's kind of what's in the middle. So... Cool stuff. It's nice to see how all the themes kind of line up there. And I, of course, totally agree about your Stygi theory. And I guess, you know, you could even just step back and say another clue that the Ironborn are from the Great Empire of the Dawn is like all the Lovecraftian, like that's where the Lovecraftian influence is heaviest is in those mm-hmm. two places. And all this creepy Stygi stuff is just like the Seastone Chair and 
all this creepy Ironborn cult stuff. So even though I'm saying that the sea stone chair is connected to the deep ones and not the Grey King, there definitely could be deep one contact with the Great Empire of the Dawn. I mean, the entire city's built out of oily stone. Clearly there could be deep one activity there, but that's a subject for another time. And we also talked about that in our uh, Origins of a Shy stream, which is doing quite well on the rewatch, Tim. I'll have you know, it's kind of taken off. Let's talk about House Good Brother. If I've blown your minds already, get ready, because here's more of it coming. One of the best mysteries is one of the last things I've figured out in this script. The only house that does not claim original descent from the Grey King, but instead from his leal brother, his leal elder brother, is House Good Brother. Now, here is my what I posit. Leal elder brother is not the Grey King's brother. Just as the Grey King probably represents a dynasty or title or style of monarch, the elder brother could it perhaps just represent the first man culture? Just as when we said, oh, the, the salt kings are often the sons or heirs of the rock kings, and the rock king is the el- you know, elder, that could refer to the fact that the culture is elder. Well, what if it's the same thing here? So, good brother Sigil is a gold-banded black warhorn on red. So, again, not obviously of the sea, and potentially a match for the gold-banded, gold-banded black warhorn that Mance Raider unearthed in the Frostfangs, which is graven with the ancient runes of the first men. That horn tells us that the first men had horn technology. They made magic horns that looked just like the one on the Good Brother sigil. Now, yes, Dragonbinder, also similar. It's got bands of steel and gold. So the Good Brother sigil more closely resembles Mance Raider's horn because it just has gold bands. And Valeria didn't exist at that time. So it's most likely that this horn, this picture of this horn, is a first man magic horn. Um, Unless the Great Empire of the Dawn brought a dragon horn before Valeria existed. And that could be the, the, the first man horn that Mance brings. Maybe that's the Great Empire of the Dawn's handiwork in Westeros. Could be. Who knows? But the point is, the Good Brother Sigil should make us think of Mance Raider's horn, and thus the first men. Would you agree, Tim? Yeah, because this is going back to for just how as many Eastern connections there are for the Ironborn. There are just as many First Men ones, specifically the North. Things like that. So connecting their the Good Brothers' Warhorn to Mance's horn is a good connection. Uh, Ironborn having gray eyes. That's the same thing we hear about House Stark. Uh, Reavers being referred to as Wolves of the Sea. Now that... As a symbolic connection to the Starks, the direwolf sigil, but it also works with the squisher imagery because wolves of the sea in real life refer to orcas. So it's also still a marine life thing, but it is showing more of these northern, all these different northern connections, which again, like tying into this this whole crux of this, it's a mix of first men and ancient mariner. So then there's more in the scene. uh, Me and Tim recently did Aaron's first feast for crows chapter. And in that chapter, if you remember, George writes the Good Brothers to be very Greenlander-ish, almost comedically so. Aaron thinks that this one is afraid to get off his horse, lest, lest, he, gets his, lest he gets his boots wet. And he mocks their drownings, which were no doubt just little sprinklings of water or something like that. But more importantly, all four Good Brother keeps on Old Wick are inland 
beyond the sound and the sight of the sea, which is, again, offends the great joy. He thinks about it. Aaron Damper thinks about how offensive that is. But yes, all four good brother keeps are inland. They are, they are not near the ocean. And their house wealth is based around mining and not maritime activity. And here's the thing. These rock kings that are tied to the first men, maybe they're called rock kings, not just because they are kings of the land, but because they were specifically mining people like the good brothers and like everyone in the Westerlands, by the way. So this reaper culture probably had to do with mining rock. Okay, so now let's go to the Westerlands, Tim. This is a real nugget here. Apparently, there's a tidbit that George wrote for The World of Ice and Fire concerning House Case. Let me pull up the map so you can see where this is. Case is here. It's on the tip of this peninsula that Casterly Rock is at the base of. So you see Casterly Rock and Lannisport here in this bay. Mm -hmm. If you go out to the tip of the peninsula, that is Case. So this is Fair Castle, and Fair Island used to be controlled by the Ironborn as well. This is the Bane Fort here, opposite Pike and north of the Crag. So these are some of the places we've been talking about, all right? So let me tell you what we've found about Case. In the World of Ice and Fire, it already in the published edition, it already told us that Case was controlled by the Ironborn during the era of the Driftwood Kings. The Driftwood Kings are the most ancient recorded historical era of Ironborn Kings. So, very long time ago, the Ironborn controlled this castle. Well, in the unprinted, the extra tidbit that somehow got cut, it says that House Case was founded by House Goodbrother in the days when the Casterlys still ruled Casterly Rock, Tim. So, before Land the Clever, before any Mariners, before any of that, back in the days when the Hooded Kings of the Banefort existed, House Goodbrother founded house case on the tip of this peninsula. So we should probably imagine that first men who spread northward from the south, mm -hmm. they probably founded case first before they migrated out to the rest of the peninsula and founded houses out on Wick. But both Wick and case are on the tip of the peninsula, so they're similar locations. And Good Brother also has a cadet house on Harlaw, which you'd assume that that was founded later from Wick. But again, it, this could be just a trail of Good Brother migration from Case to Harlaw and all the way out to Great Wick. So I guess if him scrapping that, it's kind of like... Well, it was it, scrapped. It's, it's, it's just I think it got cut like it didn't have room. Like mm -hmm. it wasn't changed. It was just cut. Ah, uh, okay. Oh, probably because of the way the pages are printed. It's in the wiki, though. So, yeah. Elio and Linda included it in the wiki as something George meant to include. So, I take it as probably canon. And it fits, it completes the picture very nicely. So, I like it, obviously. The idea that the Good Brothers moving northward founded Case first. And then, because again, this is in the days of land before land the clever. This is in, during the Casterlies. So it's a very long time ago. Going back to the map, Casterly Rock is a little bit surrounded at this point with first man reaper culture, rock king people. So uh, this is where I point out that the first Lannister kings are called kings of the rock. 
which is just <laughs> another way of saying rock king. And yeah. what do they do? Mining. So if the Iron Islands were joined to the Westerlands, we would look at the Ironborn Peninsula as part of the Westerlands, and we would see a contiguous mining-based culture of first men all over this region. And so this is the Rock Kings and the Reapers. So here's what happened, Tim. The Reaper culture, the, the first Casterlies were first men. They were probably from the same group of regional people, mining people, but they found gold where other people didn't. And so instead of raiding and pillaging and reaving and, dis and ruining, they became more interested in home security because they have gold now. <laughs> Unfortunately, Land the Clever, Tim, very good at evading home security systems. <laughs> but yeah, the Ironborn, they're mining, they don't have gold, they're only finding iron ore. So eventually they turn to stealing and raiding. And that's how you see they're always raiding the Lannisters. And we get this rivalry where the pirate Ironborn of the Driftwood era are constantly warring against the Lannisters. They share a common origin with the Rock Kings. I had, I had heard that connections with the Ironborn and the Reach, like the re reasons they raid the Reach are for similar reasons, did not make the connection to what that the Westerlands are having this. Yeah, so it makes sense. And, and the North, too. It's like all of these different offshoots of Ironborn or offshoots of these places that become Ironborn. It's like, yeah, it's like a schism in all of the cultures that were probably originally once, or at the very least, not maybe not one, but at the very least were a lot more connected had there been more land originally to connect them. And so, like I said, you could see George painting in layers. This mm. oldest layer, these first men who are farmers spread out through this region, Many of them start mining in the hills and finding rock, iron, all sorts of things, gold, okay? The ones on the coast eventually start getting farmed by the squishers and practicing water necromancy and drowning rituals. And eventually the ironborn land is severed, and those rock and mining kings are cut off from the rest of the first men. They're eventually contacted by the ancient mariners, and they evolve into a completely different culture. So... It's a very nice, detailed picture here. And again, you can see the layers, and it's fun, like an archaeologist digging down into the dirt to sort of mm -hmm. uncover these layers. And you can see there's sometimes there's a little mix-up in the layer, but we can see what happened there and how it happened. And Anyway, so back to the Good Brothers. There's a little more here. I know it seems like I just threw out this idea. Maybe the Leal Elder Brother represents the first men. Like, it's not... There's, there's thinking behind this. So elder the Leal Elder Brother, it seems like it's supposed to make us think of the Septon from the Quiet Isle in the Riverlands, who is called the Elder Brother. We meet him in his Feast for Crows. He lives on a so-called Holy Isle, just like Old Wick is called a Holy Isle. The Elder Brother title is indicative of his status as a priest of his faith, which is the, uh, the faith of the Seven. Even further, I, before I wrote this script, um, or since I wrote the script, I've, I read that chapter. Everything in the cave of the elder brother is made of driftwood. His chair, his table, cups, everything, all driftwood. And he's living in a cave. So 
It's like, is there a weirwood cave under Naga's Hill where Grey King the Greenseer may have lived? I'd say probably so. But the point is, Holy Island, Elder Brother, everything is driftwood. So he is symbolically a driftwood priest living on a holy isle. He's called the Elder Brother. So go back to the Grey King. He's wearing the first driftwood crown. Who put it on his head? One pictures some sort of drowned priest. So a religious man like the elder brother. So who's the Grey King's leal elder brother? He's the first drowned priest. And he would have been a first man because a couple of reasons. One, the first men already contacted by the deep ones. They have developed their entire drowning ritual and the drowned priest culture before the mariners ever come. So that is their local first man culture. So if the Grey King is a mariner king who wants to rule over all of the mm -hmm. local people, he's going to have a first man priest put a crown on his head because that legitimizes him in the eyes of the people. It's just like Danny putting on her floppy ears in Marine so that she's seen mm -hmm. as an authentic lady of Marine. Grey King does two things. One, he's wearing a driftwood crown, which is a local first man squisher custom, and he marries a mermaid, Tim. Who's the mermaid? The mermaid, and I'm spoiling stuff from the Deep Ones essay, but who cares? We're four hours in a live stream right now. The mermaid is none other than a fish-woman hybrid of the first men. She is a first man princess because these first men have already been squisher farmed. Some of them are hybrids. So when Greg, who does the Grey King want to marry politically, just like on Lang, he'd want to mm -hmm. marry someone of the local people that he wants to rule over. And so... Elder brother, the first drowned priest. Mermaid wife is first man lady. And so we see, that's why I pointed out the idea that uh, Euros Grey Iron was a salt king crowned by a drowned priest, mm -hmm. Galen Whitestaff. So again, yep. I say ta-da and ask what you think. Yeah, it makes, because the if we think of the elder brother in terms of the one who came before, then, yeah, obviously the first man fit that role because the ancient mariners would be the ones who show up and these people are already there. If Grey King is to rule them, then, yes, he needs to do things to win them over, which he does, bringing them fire, teaching them shipbuilding and sailing and all that, and teaching them how to adjust to the maritime life that they're now going to have to endure if they're going to continue living and not end up like the Thousand Islands, which is like, if you got farmed by deep ones and no one came to your rescue, like the, like the deep, the thousand islands is like the cautionary tale of what happens when deep one farming is allowed to go unchecked. Exactly. Iron Island. Yeah. And then, yes. Yeah, so then you want to cement that by when at first you got to win them over, then you gotta, then again, like the idea of the Pope crowning the King uh, or the Pope <laughs> crowning the emperor, you need legitimization, which would mean getting, Seeking somewhat, seeking that from someone who's already an authority figure, someone from that landed culture. And then, yes, a political marriage would also make sense. And it being some, a product of someone who's already, who is a hybrid, then that kind of helps keep the deep ones at bay. And it's like, and that's, and that's, and that fits because that fits with the idea of shadow over Innsmouth. A pact originally a pact is made 
and the Deep Ones aren't farming the people of Innsmouth unchecked. And there is an exchange going on as to why the people of Innsmouth keep giving them people because it can't be just, there can't be just a take. There has to be a give. In the Thousand Islands, we're seeing there's just take. There's there's just take on the Squishers part. So when the Grey King showed up to the Iron Islands, he may have found a situation not much better than what was on the Thousand Islands. And it may be that when it talks about the Grey King teaching the Ironborn how to do everything, he may have been lifting up some pretty patch-faced out hybrid folk from like some pretty low mm -hmm. state of existence. And that's why he's like this guy that's teaching and civilizing. Like he may have pulled them out of that and made them mm -hmm. into something a little more coherent. So when we think about the Ironborn as like bloody backwards pirates, like that's actually progress for them. They've maybe regressed a little bit, but they're doing mm -hmm. well not to be uh, like the Thousand Islands people. This is also why there's a break in history potentially, why the Ironborn mm -hmm. forgot who built Pike and where the sea stone chair came from is because at a certain point, the first men that were out on this peninsula got farmed the, out by the deep ones and yeah. they lost their language potentially. Like the thousand islands people don't have language that we can, that the maesters can detect. So they've really, they live in abject fear of the sea and like they're, they're very very fallen state people. The same thing for the Toad Island people is kind of implied as well. So it's like, if the Deep Ones are left, like you said, to just keep farming forever, it goes to some dark places. So yeah, Grey King may have been yeah. pulling the Ironborn out of that. Yeah, I come across a bunch of freaky fish, a bunch of freaky fishmen, but I gotta try and get you to lean more on the man aspect than the fish. The Thousand Islanders are becoming more, as time goes on, they're going more the fish way. So because, because I think the deep ones, I don't know if they're all male, but it would make sense if they are, and that's why they need humans to breed, just like the others need babies because they're all male and they can't reproduce. So it might be something similar like that. Um, it is usually implied they want to steal women. So it's like, oh, why is Grey King marrying a mermaid so his children will be hybrids? So it's like, well, she must be a hybrid already. And Grey King's actually not, he's not a fish person. He's a mariner. And again, deep one hybrids and people good at sea craft, different folks. They don't go together. So you've got this skilled sailor, but he's coming to the Iron Islands and meeting a bunch of hybrid fish people. And so he just married the hottest one. <laughs> and uh, that's, uh, that's the Grey King's mermaid wife. And, but then the whole, the idea of the hybridization is in his story. He married a squisher woman so his children could live in the land or sea, either one. Well, that's, that's what happens when the Deep Ones farm you, is you get these hybrids that can live in the land or the sea. That's not really why the Grey King married a mermaid wife, but that is part of this whole thing. So, boom. So there's the elder brother. The elder brother is the first drowned priest. I feel very good about that. I feel very strong about that when you compare him to the elder brother on the, on what's the, the quiet aisle in a driftwood cave. Like it's just, you know. Also, then, then you look at Sander's horse called the stranger, a black horse called the stranger. It shows up on the island and they rename it Driftwood Tim. So it's really sounds like the sea stone chair 
coming out of the mm-hmm. sea. And because the, identifying it with the stranger makes sense, obviously. It's a death yeah, god. It represents Cthulhu or something. But then they rename it Driftwood. So it's like, oh, Driftwood Thrones, Black Stranger Thrones. Yeah. And that's like I, what I had said when the one Ironborn king tried to make the faith and the Drown God religions work together. He's like, okay, well, the Drown God is an aspect of the stranger. So that's that's a symbolic way of seeing that again. So there's just one more thing that I want to talk about before we get out of here. But just to, to, to button up what we've just said, I present to you House Greyjoy of Pike, House Harlaw, House Bainfort, House Drum, and House Goodbrother of both Case and various castles on Old Wick as the recognizable footprint of the pre-Mariner Ironborn culture, who I'm calling the Reaper culture. They're a pretty brutal sort, it would seem. And even though the Grey King and his Mariners seem to have come here and risen to power, and obviously had a lot to do with shaping the Ironborn culture, the pre-existing culture in such situations never goes away completely and more often remains very strong and simply merges with the newer ideas. So along these lines, we see that thraldom, raiding, first man naming traditions, and perhaps watery necromancy survive from the original local first man culture to become part of ironborn culture. But then the great empire of the dawn people, represented by the great king, are bringing maritime skill and democracy, it would seem, and eventually that combined with the pre-existing raiding and pillaging ways of the reaper culture to become the ocean-going pirates who kind of weirdly like democracy that are the Ironborn. And that's how they came to be. Yeah. This, this is how you get a new culture. <laughs> this is how we do it. Yeah. So... We've said some of this Deep One stuff. I've already said most of it, actually. The thing I want to get to is the Seastone Chair. There's a question about when the Seastone Chair was moved to Pike. It's not said. It's just said that it was found on Wick, and now it exists on Pike. What's weird is that at the King's Moot, Aaron Greyjoy is asking who will be king. And he who says, who will sit the Seastone Chair? No godless man may sit the Seastone Chair. That implies that the winner of the King's Moot will sit the Seastone chair. Now, most of the top candidates are Greyjoys, Victarion, Asha, and Euron. However, there's other people like Farwind and Drum, Eric Ironmaker, that are going for King. So if one of them had won, would they have sat the Seastone chair? And how does that work? Do they take over Castle Pike from the Greyjoys? No, I don't think so. Do they move the Seastone chair over to Wick? so that the drum can sit on it? It would be weird if, for all of Ironborn history, they've been moving the Seastone chair around from island to island every generation, every time they make a new king, and that's never, ever mentioned anywhere. To me, that doesn't make sense. What makes more sense is that it has always been on Pike since it was moved once a long time ago, and that the Lord's Reaper of Pike have always sat on it, and that Aaron is essentially assuming that a Greyjoy will win the King's Moot. However, I do want to point this out because it is possible that it's been moved around and that George will reveal that to us and we just never mentioned. I don't know, it seems weird to me, but Tim told me that there is precedent for moving something like the Seastone Chair around. So 
This has to do with the doom that came to Sarnath, which is also relevant to what we're talking about. So take it away. So, like you said, um, the idea of them switching castles makes the least amount of sense. The idea of moving the Seastone Chair from Iron Island to Island makes a bit more sense. It'd be a lot simpler to move a chair from island to island than it would be to completely get up and move to another castle. And there is precedence for that because the Deep Ones do move the Black Stone, the Shining Trapezohedron, from the time that it is first dropped onto the Earth and it lands at Atlantis and Atlantis sinks. Once it makes it to its next place, it's because the deep ones are the ones that are mo- that are moving it. They're moving it from place to place. So that sets up the precedent. And as in Doom became the Sarnath, there's also their they have an idol. Their idol is the water lizard Buckrug, which sounds more like a salamander to me than anything. And that gets that gets moved and taken. And then same thing with the stone isle idol of Cthulhu and the stone idols of Zotha Mog as they get they they drift from place to place to place because if they weren't being moved from place to place no one would come in contact with them and we wouldn't get the stories that are written somebody there hey damon somebody has to has to be moving them so for me the idea of the sea stone chair moving being moved from island to island isn't something that is completely isn't one that i want to completely write out but like you said until george himself confirms it we won't know now, the idea that the Seastone Chair is staying at Pike does have precedence, too, and that is because of the fact that is if the Seastone Chair goes hand-in-hand hand with the Greyjoy sigil. They have the Kraken, and the Seastone Chair is a Kraken. So that does lend credence that the Seastone Chair is always at Pike. But without, it's again, it's one of those unknown unknowns. Depend, but George, what I'm getting at is George can go either way. He has precedence for it always being at Pike by having the Greyjoy sigil be the thing that resembles the chair, but he also has precedence for it moving because of the way the trapezohedron moves around in Lovecraft. So the thing is, even if the throne was never moved around from Ironborn Island to Island, what you're talking about is still very important, obviously, because at some point the Seastone chair we can conclude, was dragged out of the ocean by the squishers for the first men to use. That is the obvious conclusion of it being found on the shoreline and having to do with obvious squisher worship is that it was brought ashore. So it turns out that's just what the Deep Ones do. They move around Blackstone idols to places that they're going to destroy. And what happened to Wick? And the Iron Islands, it got hit by a meteor, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so did it come from a shy that also got hit by a meteor? Maybe. Are these multiple meteor attacks? There's no way to know. Some people really do hate the fact that I say, like, I put all the meteor stuff in this one incident. And other people prefer multiple cycles of meteors. And honestly, if there was a fragmented moon up there, it would be raining down meteors periodically. So... That's absolutely a realistic idea. I just throw my hands up at it because I think George is really only giving us information about the most recent incident. But yeah, did the Dawn meteorite come thousands of years before the Long Night? Because the Great Empires of the Dawn, they all have swords of pale fire in Danny's vision. So that implies that the original meteor swords were white and that the, the original Dawn meteorite is before the Long Night and that Bloodstone Emperor 
he called down another one, but his was black. And so he's corrupting the ways of the great empire of the dawn and imitating what they used to do, but doing it in a foul blood magic way. That works for me. So mm. I don't know how many cycles of meteor strikes there were. It's hard to say. But the point is, if there's a Kraken idol that shows up on your shoreline, it means that this island is going to get destroyed. So the old legend of it being found on Old Wick, which looks like it was destroyed, and then it moves to Pike, which was also destroyed. You see what I'm saying here? Like, it's more evidence that there's been massive land collapse, uh, collapse here and that the Iron Islands should be associated with ideas like Atlantis, which mm. obviously the Grand Empire of the Dawn is Atlantis. So if we're grafting all of this Lovecraft stuff onto ice and fire, then the Deep Ones brought a squisher idol or maybe helped call down the meteor that struck at Stygi and destroyed Ashai, the Great Empire of the Dawn. And then they brought the thing over here or maybe before mm. that. I don't know what the order is, but you get the point. Like, Yeah. <laughs> the point, but yeah, the, yeah. The point is, is that anywhere that these disasters happen, there's always some kind of Lovecraftian item there. The, the Iron Islands have have the sea stone chair. Uh, Toad Isle has has uh, the Toad statue. A shy has its entire building masonry. At we were we believe the Thousand Islands have those statues of fish headed gods that you see when when the tide recedes. And the the stepstones, well, one of them is literally named Bloodstone. So they all have like a calling card that is like deep ones were here. Indeed. And Grey Gallows is a good one too. That's the other named Stepstone Island. Because of course Odin hangs on the gallows, the hanged man mm -hmm. gets us pretty close to the Grim Reaper and all the death symbolism, and then he's grey too. So a grey Odin is a grey gallows. And that's Great King. Um, so there you go. So that's just the last detail that I wanted to say is, yeah, the sea stone chair, technically, maybe it was moved around from island to island. But I think Greyjoy is just tipping his hand as a, Grey, as a Greyjoy homer. Aaron, rather, the damp hair, is tipping his hand as a homer when he says, who will sit the sea stone chair? The drum should have been, should have said something right there. You're like, ah, oh, <laughs> damp hair. Well, necessarily, but you see that um, one of, I forget if it's Farwind or I think it is Eric Ironmaker who's like, where is it said that a Greyjoy has to rule us? The Greyjoys are only lords since Aegon's conquest and everyone's like, yeah, that's true. So he's specifically challenging the idea that it has to be a Greyjoy. So mm -hmm. you see that like Aaron is like, well, who's going to be the Lord Greyjoys? Obviously the next king will be a Greyjoy. And then, Eric, and then the other guy's like, well, not necessarily. Yeah. So <laughs> I think that's this, what's going yeah, on. This, this commentary is completely biased. <laughs> yes. Um, and yes, Euron's eye, the blood eye, it could be a bloodstone. It could be an oily stone in there. And that would kind of be a very literal symbol, symbolization of Euron being mind-controlled by you know, the deep ones or space demon entities or whatever. So we will see. But I do think the dragonglass eye of Moore's crow food umber is a clue that there is a bloodstone under the eye patch. Because it's called both a blood eye and a black eye. So what is it? It's a black blood eye. That's, that's a bloodstone. It's a black bloodstone. There you go. That's it. And then... 
Go home, everyone. Uh, devoted to Mariah is pointing out Euron's also coming back exactly 300 years after Aegon the Conqueror. And that is something that throughout history to t that we could touch upon throughout history the beginning of a new century is always seen as like some kind of monumental moment so the fact that yeah that we're entering the year 300 a new century is like that is another sign like another heralding sign that something big should happen so there you go um yeah that that's it's really nice how the, the Aldebaran thing all ties in with Euron and the Red Comet. It, it helps make sense of the Red Comet, for sure, and puts it in a context. So, just to review what we've learned today in the past four hours. Um, part or all of the Iron Islands archipelago was probably joined to mainland Westeros, and this is probably how the first men came to the land that became the islands. The ancient Lord Reapers of Pike, the scythe-wielding Harlaw Kings... Hooded kings of the Bane Fort, the rock kings of House Drum, and likely the warhorn-wielding good brothers of Case and Great Wick are part of the first man reaper culture. This culture was based on, uh, was first man based and practiced farming and thraldom and mining. The rock kings of the post-long night ironborn culture seemed to descend from the reapers, whereas the salt kings seemed to descend from the mariners, and thus from the great king. Uh, this salt king rocking tradition would have been one of the main mechanisms for cultural assimilation between the Mariners and the Reapers. And this is why Salt Kings and Rock Kings were often rival factions. So there you go. Boom, boom, ski, boom, ski, boom. Mm -hmm. That's how you turn a one hour video into a four hour live stream <laughs> and feel happy about it, I guess. I don't know, I hope you all had fun. We had over 400 people watching the whole time. So thank you very much, those of you who tuned in and who are watching after the fact, fact, but yes, pretty fun stuff. And like now you see why I was saying this is the most detailed world building, I think, that George has done anywhere with the Ironborn. So it's pretty fun to dive into this. And I this is like this comes from looking at it really hard. Like I said, me and Tim did that heraldry stream and unpacked each of the sigils of each house. And that's kind of what got me thinking. I was like, wait a minute. Some of these sigils match and don't have anything to do with the water. And then the Banefort stuff sort of broke it open. So, Rod Robinson, Euron will be trapped in the Weirwood Net as Azor High is released from his bondage. You heard it here first. Yeah, that makes sense. You got to pay for everything, right? Um, for Azor, well, look at it this way. For Azor High to get out of the Weirwood Net, he needs a body. And this is the Inaluki parallel. So if he's, potentially the others want to stuff him in John's body. But the other candidate would be Euron. So yeah, if Euron is possessed, maybe his mind goes into the Weirwood Net prison that Azor Ahai used to be in. That would be funny. Um, yeah, I could... So, questions or comments? Tim, closing thoughts and chat. Yeah, so closing thoughts, like we, we've talked about, like there are, t like when we think of the far, far East and Great Empire of the Dawn visiting Westeros, we get little touches here and there. House Dane, House Hightower. But the Ironborn, it really is like... And it's why we get that line of from, from the world of Ice and Fire, from the Archmaesters, why they're a culture of their own, is because this really is the melting pot. Like, yeah, there's little touches here and there with, with certain select houses. But the Ironborn, as, we, as I hope we've established with the stream, is where you really see the intermingling and of of Far East and First Men really coming together, and that is why we get like such a distinct 
culture from the west from the rest of the rest of Westeros, if I can talk. Yeah, I was just I just continued to be amazed by how much was there because it's like one thing leads to another. It's like oh. The first thought is like, well, maybe the land was connected. And I was like, oh, the Bane Fort. Well, that's right where the land would be. And then I looked at the Bane Fort Kings and was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, the name Bane, it's, he sounds like an Ironborn Reaver, but without water. And then just you keep going with it. It's like, wait, the Harloss, they've got a scythe and the bone hand. And you're just like, wait, the Good Brothers founded Case. And by the time I found that, I was just like freaking out. You know, I'm just yeah. like, oh, my God. The whole thing is here. And the, even the Lannisters are a part of it. Mm. It's like they're just the, the local rock kings that hit struck gold. So again, they turn to home security instead of stealing. <laughs> makes perfect sense. Yeah, and then seeing, yeah, that great, that gray shield thing, the, the Reaper takes over for the Grim. <laughs> That's pretty fun. And that has to yeah. do with the shield. The shield islands are important because... Again, they're originally possessed by squishers. Then, mm -hmm. son of the green man, Owen Oakenshield, drives them off. Settles it for the Reach. Then later, the Ironborn, who parallel the squishers, possess the islands again. And then, more Greenhand kings come and kick the Ironborn off the islands. So it's repeating cycles where the green men are contesting with the squishers and the Ironborn. And that's essentially what's going on on the Iron Islands, because the first men, they are descendants of Green Men and Garth and all that, and they're moving north, and then they're running into uh, to Squishers. So, anyway, subscribe to Grey Waste, Tim. Tim, you've been invaluable today. Really appreciate you, man. This has been lots of fun. And oh, thank you for... Yep. I love doing this. Thank you for having me. Love y'all. Thanks for watching the video, and uh, I will see you definitely next Sunday. And if you haven't watched all Tim's videos, you've got those to enjoy as well. Gray Waste Tim is the channel. You can click on the name in the description that says Gray Waste Tim or just look in, just literally type in Gray Waste Tim and you will find the channel. It's easy. You guys know how the internet works. So thank you all. And I'll see you next week. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.